Hey, it's Taylor from Free Lunch here. Before we get into today's episode, we are at the end of the year and we are doing a rating and review drive. So if you have enjoyed this year's episodes of Free Lunch, please head over to Apple or Spotify, leave a positive rating and review, take a screenshot or just let us know the name you left it under and then send it to me at taylor at readthepeak.com. And we will send three people who leave ratings and reviews a peak merch pack, including a cap, a tote bag, and a sweater. That's taylor at readthepeak.com. Thanks so much for listening this year. Really appreciate you all and appreciate your support in growing the show. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, uh, do you drink beer? I don't. I don't drink beer. Okay. Well, you know, you go to the LCBO, you go to the, the grocery store and you see how see many beer. different... You see I beer. see other people You're drinking beer, beer a lot. I've heard of beer, yeah. for sure. You know, there's just like a million brands in the LCBO now. Uh, of different beers you can buy, like super local beers, craft beers. 100%. And I, I feel like when I was uh, a kid, not that I was drinking beer, but you know, I would go into the LCBO with my parents <laughs> and I just, that didn't exist, I don't think. This feels like a... There were two beers yeah, exactly. and now there's like 200. <laughs> exactly. This feels like a rel- relatively recent uh, development. In and the it's beer hard industry. to choose because although I don't drink beer, if I have to drink a beer, I'll probably drink a Guinness because who doesn't love a Guinness? I love a Guinness when it's cold. Of course, of course. Uh, cold, properly poured, the whole thing. I mean, when it's cold outside. Right. Well, the beer has to be cold as well. The beer has ideally. to be cold, yeah. But, but you're not drinking Guinness in like July, right? <laughs> I have before. That's besides the point. Okay. I do when you're trying to do something nice and you're trying to pick up, pick up some beers for some friends, you're hosting a nice dinner. I find myself faced with so many options. Lately, too, because you kind of want to get something cool. And then it kind of occurs to you just how big and expansive this craft section of the LCBO has become and just how many breweries there are, how many options there are. And really, that when you're talking to people, they all kind of, you know, they have their favorites, you know, within those choices, too, that they're super loyal to. And I am always overwhelmed by the amount of options. Yeah, totally. So I think it's a really interesting business to dive into and to see how the economics of craft brewing really work. And we've got a great guest on to explain all of that to us today. Aiden Wiener is the founder of Henderson Brewing, which is one of the uh, larger craft breweries here in Toronto. And he's going to share how his business and the craft brewing sector works. So Aiden, thanks for joining us on Free Lunch. Happy to join you guys. Very excited. So why don't we start with just an overview of your business, Henderson Brewing. Can you tell us what it is you do, uh, what you sell, how big you are. Give us the, the basics. Sure, sure. So we're, <clears throat> we're what would be considered in, in general mainstream a craft brewery. Uh, January 20th, this coming January 20th, will be our ninth anniversary, which would make us kind of part of the, um, the second or third wave of craft brewers in this country. Uh, we're in Toronto in uh, the lower junction, so kind of by Hyde Park for those people from around the country. We're named um, Henderson Brewing Company. Neither my partner or I are Hendersons. We named it after the first brewer in Toronto, Robert Henderson, who had a brewery at Sherborne Adelaide in uh, 1804. Um, 
he basically had a brewery in Kingston. And the only people that were allowed to drink beer at the turn of the century were the British troops of Fort York. And there was a bunch of brewers who would bring over their beer from horse and carriage. And he said, this is kind of crazy. Why am I bringing my beer all the way from Kingston into Toronto? So he opened a brewery at what is now considered Cabbage Town in Toronto uh, in 1804. And then he created, um, you know, it was an English style beer. And he basically served the troops of Fort York. And then he sort of disappears from the uh, the history books. I mean, it's, it's uh, I tell this story to mixed reviews is that uh, his wife basically left him for a richer brewer and then his brewery burnt down and he oh, died. No. Okay. So but that's, that is <laughs> they, part of the story. If somebody will look it up. Yeah. They left that out of the Fort York tour when I was there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So we're, um, we were a full-on production brewery. We probably got to be about the fourth or fifth largest, maybe even fourth largest brewery in Toronto, um, which would put us, we were probably around, 15th or 13th overall in Ontario. Um, but we made this switch really um, coming out of COVID to as we hit our, our, our ceiling for production and our location, the location totally gentrified. Uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art came in, Chironi's, which is a, you know, a very uh, hip pizza concept moved in next to us. So we, we still make some beer on site. We make uh, our, our limited edition one-offs, but most of our capacity is now made at a, a, a partner brewery of ours um called bench brewing company down in niagara so um yeah it's an interesting story so i'm curious about that pivot uh because you know i don't know much about craft brewing and the economics of it and the costs yep. and that sort of thing so what was the thinking that went into that decision to say okay, sure in the, in the beer anymore. business we talk hectoliters so um we basically our, our goal when we started this was to get to ten thousand hectoliters in our current location um, and we pretty much achieved that. My partner and I, it took a few extra years, obviously with COVID and stuff. And my partner and I were always kind of joking, well, what the hell happens when we hit 10,001 hectoliter? Cause we really, you know, we don't own the building. We couldn't go through the roof. We couldn't get more trucks in and out. We couldn't make more beer. We weren't really, we didn't want to run a 24 hour, seven day a week uh, operation. Uh, we we're always big on the hospitality side with our tap room space. So really, um, that's what came out of it is we, we couldn't make enough beer um, and then as the area gentrified, we were having problems getting trucks in and out. Uh, there's more and more cars. We we're having problems getting our spent grains out and stuff like that. So it really forced our hand to start talking to some partners. And we formed this relationship with Bench. They've been wonderful. So they make a lot of our core beers and distribute it. And we really focus on um, our, our, our one-off limited edition beers. We focus on our event spaces now. Um, and we focus on these six large festivals we throw a year. So it really is a, a pivot from a, a manufacturing brewery, a craft brewery traditionally to, um, you know, almost a hospitality company for lack of a better term without the food, to be honest. Hmm. Let's go back in time to the boom in kind of craft breweries, like from the beginning, I'm interested to kind of know the history in terms of when the first kind of craft breweries came onto the scene, what the the business landscape kind of looked like and and how it's kind of evolved and, and how it sure. kind of taken out of the pandemic. I mean, you really have in Canada and also just similar to the States, you have your, your early adapters. Uh, so, you know, you have your, your, your John Sleeman's, you have your, your big rock, you have your, um, you know, those are sort of the, um, the guys down on the Island there. You have sort of three or four people that came out, started making craft beer. Uh, but really the, the, the boom started probably around the, Early 90s, you had some breweries popping up. Steam Whistle, Shaftesbury in Vancouver, uh, um, uh, Okanagan Spring in BC. 
and really a sort of smattering around and, and consumers, you know, were kind of drawn to these. And then the sort of the late 90s, early 2000s created another wave of, of craft breweries. But the big wave uh, really sort of happened, you know, I don't know exactly when, but probably around 2006 to now you still have, you know, breweries opening all the time. So whereas, you know, you used to go to Guelph, for example, and there'd be one craft brewery. Well, Guelph probably itself now has six or seven. You go to Edmonton, which was well behind the craft beer scene. I'm sure I'm pissing some people off in Alberta, but Alberta alone probably has 30 craft breweries in the city. So um, the big boom is the, the, the huge boom has happened over the last 10 to 12 years. Um, and then, you, you know, we are in a stage where you do hear some closures, although in fairness, the media really does like to latch on. Is this the end of the craft brewery business? This brewery shut, that brewery shut. And just like restaurants, you know, um, you're going to have some great restaurants shut. You're going to have some poorly operated restaurants shut. And that's kind of what's happening in the, in the craft brewing industry now. So you had your initial wave in the, in the 80s of, you know, five or six breweries. And I'm sure that the beer historians will correct me. And then a steady wave in the, in the 90s. But really the last sort of 15 years has been this huge boom. How, how do the sales for a craft brewery break down? Is it, you know, it's kind of weird, I'm sure, in a province like Ontario where everything is distributed through the LCBO or, you know, I guess that's about it. But between people coming in and buying stuff, between restaurants and bars buying stuff, between uh, retailers, how does that break down for a, a small? Yeah, <laughs> good question. So. Your most profitable channel is always going to be selling out your front door, your tap room, whether that's pints or bottles, people to go. Um, and and more and more, that is the the survival model. If, if you open a brewery or your brewery doesn't do a fair amount of walk-up trade, because um, you can imagine when you sell a pint for 7 or $8 at your front door, there's no, um, you know, there's no middleman on that. You're making the beer and you're selling it right away. Um, so, and then, you know, the, the, the bars and restaurants – um, you know, should represent about 30 to 40% of your mix, uh, depending on your strategy. Obviously, there's costs involved with tap handle, glass, or salespeople delivery. But really, it, time and time again, consumers try beers on tap at bars and restaurants and then buy it at retail. So you're at, you know, a Joey's or a Roll location across the, the country, and you see, a, you know, a classic one with Sapporo. Sapporo was a very strong brand in, the, in, in bars and restaurants. And then the people go into the LCBO or the BC. LDB or the private channel in Alberta, like, oh, Sapporo, I had that at Joey's. That's how I'm going to buy it. So, but since then, really for craft breweries, certainly in Ontario, while the grocery channel has opened up, we're allowed to sell groceries. And obviously, LCBO is a very strong right. supporter of craft country. beer. Yeah. Uh, the growth has to really be um, out of your tap room. You have to have a, a vibrant, um, you know, a lot of places serve food. We don't serve food. You know, you can Uber Eats, you can get pizza from next door, you can just buy a bag of chips here. Um, but you have to have a vibrant um, tap room that is, is, is busy most of the time and is serving your direct clientele or, or visitors from around the country or the world. We have this partnership with Rush, which we can touch on later, the rock band. Um, but that, you know, from a revenue standpoint, a profitability, the, uh, the tap room needs to be number one now. How difficult is it to get a beer on tap at like a chain restaurant versus like a provincial distributor like the LCBO? Um, well, provincial distributor like the LCBO or the BCLDB, if you're, I should speak to the LCBO, which I'm much more familiar with, obviously being in Ontario, although I'm from Vancouver, uh, the L L LCBO still is, is a super strong supporter of craft beer. And if you're a new brewery, they will give you a listing. 
Um, a lot of bre- breweries feel, oh, I got my listing at the LCBO. I'm set now. Well, that's you still have to sell it into individual stores. It's a decentralized model. So just because the LCBO said, okay, you know, you can have peak amber ale sold at the LCBO, you still have to go to every single store and talk to every single beer manager and explain why your product needs to be on their very crowded shelf. Really? So, wow. As far as the chains go, I think there's been the shift over the last really 10 or 15 years where they used to be very tied into having Molson Labatt products because that's what the consumer wanted. But the consumer does, to a degree, want craft beer now. And certainly chains, again, you know, I'm going to mention Joey's and Earl's, uh, have been ahead of the game and having, you know, local craft beers available on their draft and can list. But they don't have, you know, um, Henderson maybe in their Ontario locations, but it's certainly not in their BC locations. So they're, they're, they're sticking to local and they're sticking to breweries that, can you know guarantee product, guarantee supply, guarantee quality, which isn't always easy because obviously the seasonality in our in our markets uh, in our businesses is is intense. So, how much more do you make when a beer is sold at a Joey versus like an LCBO versus out of your front door? Um, I think the answer to that is that the the number one thing is through the front door. Number two is to uh, the LCBO and Joey's uh, can be same. It's very challenging in Ontario. One of the, the, the interesting things, and um, the Canadian Craft Brewers Association, our lobby group, has spent a lot of time with the government right now. In Ontario alone, we pay uh, the highest tax of any um, craft brewing industry in Canada. And we, it's actually eight times what our, our fellow brewers in Alberta pay. Um, and then from a profitability standpoint, it really comes down to when we sell to the LCBO, we don't pay all the taxes. They pay all the taxes. They are you using essential distribution? So it's not as easy uh, a question to answer, to be honest. Not clean cut. It costs the same. Actually, it's, well, obviously, it's cheaper for a brewer to put beer in a keg than it is to put beer in cans because you have all the extra packaging requirements, the labor requirements, and stuff like that. But it's, it's, um, it's not as straightforward a question, to be honest. Uh, uh, are the margins on the hospitality business that you're moving into, uh, are they a lot better than they are on just selling beer? Like, do you think we'll see a lot more craft breweries move in that direction? Well, Taylor, you, you inform me you're about to get married, right? And yeah. you, um, the, um, the money that you're going to put into a wedding, is that more than a night out with a couple of your buddies at the bars? <laughs> just a little so, bit. Yeah. So we, we, um, Yes, the hospitality, there's definitely, uh, in, in all cities, there's a craving for new spaces. Uh, you know, COVID really, um, unfortunately, destroyed a lot of event space. The event business was gone. Uh, a few survived. So there's also, um, the other thing is, it's not just events, but we're really focusing on experiential. So we threw something uh, which we're really throwing our weight behind. We threw Toronto's first ever pickle festival and all things fermented uh, October 21st, so just about a month and a half ago. And we had over 5,000 people attend. We had 50 vendors selling everything from pickle pizza to pickle popcorn to uh, pickle donuts. And what is happening now is that, you know, we're back to where people want experiences. You know, it's not just to go into a tap room and have two beers or to go to a restaurant. If they're going to spend their money, you know, it's, it's like, how, why is the Cineplex Odeon um, VIP system booming because if people are going to go to a movie, they want to be able to sit in nice seats. They want to be able to reserve their seats. They want to be able to have some drinks. It's crazy. They're even eating meals during the movie, which is mm. you know counterintuitive to me. But so we're really focusing on you know we're going to be starting fermentation courses. We have this this event called um, Vinyl Show and Tell where you bring in a record and you talk to 
40 or 50 people and explain why this record is important to you. But then we play a song and if you come up, you get a free beer. So um, it's not just events. So we, yes, we do weddings, bar mitzvahs, holiday parties, but it's also throwing these festivals in our parking lot. We have, we have access to about three to 4,000 people in this. It's essentially a parking lot. I'm looking at it right now and there's cars in it, but people are back to looking for experiences um, and wanting to do stuff. And as we know, travel is expensive, you know, hotels are expensive. So what can we do in our city as a staycation? And that's really what we're trying to be part of. And I think a lot of breweries are really throwing their weight behind that because it's, it's a way forward for us all. Mm. So how, as a small business, how do you go about thinking through that? Because it feels like you can no longer just like sell the beer. You have to like also make the beer and then you have to do kind of other things. So like as a small business owner, when you're like, okay, we're making beer, how does that expansion work in terms of deciding where to invest resources, what's going to work, what's going to stick, because lots of small businesses, I think, are finding themselves in a place where they have to kind of diversify in terms of where they're getting money from. What we did was we took, you know, 85% call it of our production and gave it to another brewery to make for us. So we, you know, the space in in Sterling Road, which Taylor's been to, you know, we used to have about 22 tanks. We had a kegging machine. We had a canning machine. We had a forklift. We had all the raw materials, the kegs. All of that is almost gone. Our, our brewery's still here. You walk in, you see the brewery. But where there used to be, you know, 80 hectoliter fermenters, which, you know, touch the ceiling, now we have 20 hectoliter fermenters and 10 hectoliter fermenters making small batch beer. So we basically said, look, we can't get to where we need to and still be a production facility. You know, and there are people that do that. Steam Whistle is incredibly successful, but you know, again, I'm talking about Toronto, but everybody knows the Roundhouse. They don't really make beer there anymore. That is an event space, and that is a tap room and a restaurant, and their production is made down the road in Etobicoke. So hmm. it's it's incredibly challenging to make money in the craft brewing industry in Ontario because the taxation is so high. I mean, it's it's, you know, my partner told me here, we pay, you know, up to five, four to five different taxes, whether it's provincial or federal. So the, the, you have to diversify and it's tough. We, we, it's been a challenging year, but we, we had to make decisions to tear off the bandaid for lack of better term. And, you know, we, we were very fortunate to find partners in bench who had capacity and benches is, is, you know, they're one of the breweries that want to make beer. They're a production facility in Beamsville, uh, down in Niagara. And they are, you know, they want to be producing 50,000 hectoliters of beer. So for us to move our production, you know, 85% of it there, allows us to focus on where we need to go going forward because it's impossible to be pulled in all directions unless you're an organization of 30 or 40 people and that's just not us i'm curious how you develop new products in beer because you know as we're talking about it it occurs to me that like beer is has been around for a long time and it's kind of the same ingredients uh but there are so many different options and varieties you know when you're coming up with a new product or when you're working with your contract manufacturers on creating new products. What's the thinking that goes into, we're going to make this type of beer versus that type sure. of beer? I think um, it's a very good question. I think there's two types of, the initial thought is one, is it just to be sold out our front door? Or two, is it to go into general distribution? So, you know, are we putting this in LCBO? Are we putting this in bars and restaurants? And if you look at what do you want to sell through your front door, you can almost go anywhere. I mean, what was a beer is no longer a beer now. You know, there's chocolate, imperial pastry stouts. There's sours. There's dark log. I mean, a lot of it is <laughs> fun stuff. based. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is taken from 
you know, the, the great brewing, uh, you know, countries of the world. So whether it's Germany or, uh, you know, England, uh, obviously the Czech Republic, that's where, you know, ales came from. That's where lagers came from. That's where pills came from. But the stuff coming, you know, over the last 10 years out of the United States from the cutting edge perspective. So if we want to celebrate the front door every month, we produce an Ides, which is a story about Toronto that we release in the middle of the month. In fact, next year will be our hundredth Ides and there'll be a, a book that we're produ- produ- in production alongside it. That what we do is we take a story. So to give you an example, we took a story about the official food of Toronto, which is the female bacon sandwich. And we went to our brewer and we said, make us a beer that has some sort of thing to go along with the female bacon sandwich. So he made a beer that is salty, that basically cuts through the, 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 the sandwich to go along as a pairing with the sandwich. Um, so that we just brew. You know, we brew it. We hope it's good. It generally sells out. We don't make a lot of it. But if you're putting something into mass production or for the general public, so the LCBO, beer stores, bars and restaurants, the first thing you got to do is think of the season. Because we do certainly in Canada have four distinct seasons. And the last thing you want is a dark, heavy beer in the, in the summer. And the last thing you want, you know, people do move to, you know, you don't want a, a light. I mean, I shouldn't say that. People will drink light beer all year round. But so you think about the season. And then, you know, you look at your competitive set and you say, you know, we have data rich. Uh, we have at our disposal. So it's like, what's selling? Oh, this type of sour beer is selling. Well, do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be a follower? Do you want to create something? Or is that beer all in the market on its own? So I guess to kind of ask your question in a roundabout way, um, when you're doing it just to sell at your front door, you, whatever, just throw shit at the wall, whatever sticks, sticks. And generally, if you make small enough of it, it'll sell out. And there's always a market of people who will always buy something new from you. When you go into mass distribution, you got to put some strategic thought to it. Your price point becomes much more um, important. And then, of course, the liquor boards do have a year and a say on if they want this product or not. So you can't walk up to them and say, we want to do this beer called Circus Riot, which we just launched which is about a uh, crazy story when these the ro- this circus, these clowns got into a fight with the fire department um, at a brothel, actually, in Toronto in the 1900s. Um, <laughs> that sounds well, like a that's, great that's story. That's a beer that's costing $5.95. It's 10%. So the LCBO says, sure, we like, the, we like it, but that wouldn't sell in the summer. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, when you are coming up with these products, you know, you're going up in the LCBO against like, Budweiser and the giant, giant uh, beer sellers. How do you think about differentiating yourself from them? It's a good question. We're not really up against Budweiser or Coors Light. What we are up against is craft breweries that these massive breweries own. Okay. So, for example, Mill Street or Granville Island or, you know, Okanagan Spring um, or Peak. Banded, I believe they're called in Calgary. Um, so, you know, when we set out to build Henderson nine years ago, we never really wanted the beer to be sold outside of Toronto. We wanted it to be a local brewery where it was always fresh in Toronto. Because we, excuse me, ended up doing quite well in the LCBO, LCBO distribution, there's 670 stores from, you know, north to south, east to west. We ended up expanding. But really, if you take Henderson, and I'm sure this is very similar for I would argue probably at least 70% of all the craft breweries in the country is we're strongest in the 20 stores by our brewery. So really it's, it's even though they could walk to the brewery, they're at the LCBO, they're at a BC liquor store, they're buying wine, they're buying their groceries. You know, you can get beer at Loblaws. My top performing grocery store is the no frills down the road. 
My top performing beer store is the beer store down the road. My top performing LCBO store is a five-minute walk from the brewery. So really, how you differentiate is by being local. Interesting. And, and that's what Craft Brewery started out to do, and, that, and that's really where we need to continue to grow is, is – and there's, you know, there's, there's six breweries within walking distance, but you know, we, we, that's how we make connections. Hmm. So like you said, it's like people that have tried the beer – then they go out and they to the neighboring yeah, grocery store. Exactly. Whether they're at the brewery, whether they were here five years ago, we have this amazing uh, collaboration with the rock band Rush with Getty and Alex. That beer is, uh, you know, really across the country. And, you know, that has opened up an incredibly different market to us, including the States of people who had never heard of Henderson, but Rush's, you know, Canadian icons, but also I think the sixth largest selling rock band of all time. So, they see this Rush Canadian Gold Nail. They come to the brewery. They try this. Oh, what else do you have? And they try Henderson's Best or Food Truck or Figo. And that's really how you do it. The, the, you know, no, but no breweries, I mean, maybe a couple. I should say, no breweries that is sort of the, the mid to smaller range have any money to spend on above line marketing. Right. You know, have, there's no, there's no, you're not going to see a Henderson bus shelter anytime soon. Has there ever been a product that just didn't work, like totally flopped? Yes, many. Can you tell us about them or one? Um, I, I'm not going to lie. Like there's been beers that we throw down the drain. You know, we, 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 um, our export stout, for example, which is an award-winning 7% beer. The export stout is a style that came out of Jamaica. Uh, we launched it as an Ides, um, Jamaica. Toronto has the largest, uh, Jamaican expat community anywhere outside of Jamaica, uh, for a city and it, it, people love it. Well, we saw two years ago or three years ago, I've lost track because of COVID, we saw this beer take off at the LCBO. And it's kind of like, I don't know if you remember that Simpsons episode where Homer invested in pumpkins and it was, <laughs> everybody was begging him to sell at Halloween. And he saw the chart of growth. He's like, no, these are going to peak in January. Well, we kept making the stout well past St. Patty's Day. And as the weather turns, people just don't drink stout. I mean, Guinness, for example, actually has less calories than your normal lager. So Guinness is actually a very easy drinking stout. Ours is quite a thick, heavy one. So we were just stuck on all this stuff. So we're like, well, what are we going to do? So we came up with these ideas to essentially flavor them. And uh, we did a, um, a Mexican spice stout and we did a caramel stout and both of them failed miserably hmm. to the point where nobody really bought a second one. And then we were kind of flying blind, like the Mexican spiced one. Um, I, I don't even remember. I think it had chocolate and jalapenos in it. And we thought it'd be great. And we're like, yeah, we're going to sell the rest of this. And, and, and unfortunately, it was a huge flop. And uh, I sadly watched an employee for, you know, $18 an hour pour the beer down the drain. So um, you can't always uh, hit a home run or a triple. And, you know, it took us a long time to learn this. But one of the, the, the keys in the craft brewing business is it's okay to sell out. You know, we, we've, we've also failed where one of the very first beers we brewed uh, was a beer called Cucumber Blonde. And it was basically exactly that. It was a blonde ale with cucumber um, in it and it it flew and, and for years people would talk about cucumber blonde when are you bringing back cucumber blonde when are you bring back cucumber blonde finally about four years ago my partner wilted and we brought back cucumber blonde to a to a person everybody's like eh, it wasn't as good as the first time <laughs> and you know and i think that's 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 you're never gonna you know when people love something it's, it's like you know it's like a, a restaurant experience or listening to an album or going to a concert you know like oh that was an amazing fish show I saw, but it wasn't as good as when I saw them back in 1994 or something like that. Right, so that's kind right. of the, the, um, the challenge, um, in, in craft brewing. And, and I've learned the hard way that it's okay to sell out and, uh, you know, I'm a natural salesman, so I want to continue to sell, but 
it's okay because the people have bought what they're going to buy and then they moved on to something else. You're, uh, you, the partnership with Rush got me thinking about age demographics and like, do you notice a, a difference in taste preferences between older people uh, and the Gen who, Zs, older people who might have grown up with Rush, for example, and younger people who are maybe just starting to buy beer. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, my partner and I argue about this a lot. I have, uh, you know, teenage boys, and I'm not going to say that they drink, but I'm going to say that uh, when I was of a younger age, you know, you would get your hands on whatever you could drink, and health uh, and fitness really wasn't a priority, except for one or two people who, um, you know, were, were hockey players or basketball players or something like that. And I think the big challenge now is, 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 you know, health and fitness and mental well-being are, are so much more ingrained in our society and in younger people. Like, you know, um, the gyms are bad. Like it's, it's just a thing now, right? Like I'm not saying fitness wasn't a thing back then and everybody wanted to be in shape, but it wasn't, you know, I just look at this, these people who are, you know, we call them LDA, like legal, legal drinking age. And they're way more attuned to calories, to what they put in their body, to, you know, Instagram and TikTok have changed so that, you know, it's about, it's about the experience of eating, you know, the hip new pizza place. I'm who knows if they're finishing the entire piece of pizza, right? Like it's about being there. Um, so it's much more about the experience and yes. So you have a one end, you have an aging demographic who used to be predominantly drinking beer and two. Now you have this younger demographic who may like beer and they're willing to, they're definitely more experiential. Again, I keep using that word, but they're willing to try different beers. They ask for sours, they ask for, you know, flavored stouts or whatever, but their, their beer is just one of the many things they're drinking. They're drinking vodka, they're drinking white claw, they're drinking, you know, they're dipping into to rye, they're drinking and dipping into bourbon. I mean, that was, you know, I didn't really drink bourbon until I was 24, 25. And that was Jack Daniels at the time, but now they're just, they're aware of all these products. They're aware of all these distilleries. They go to these distilleries. They go to these breweries. So um, the drinking habits are, you know, are, are, are certainly incredibly different. Interesting. Do you think that young people are drinking less than older people? Is there a trend towards drinking less? Well, older people, I think, are generally drinking less. So you basically, I, we're kind I of stuck say, in the middle. Older people when they were young. Let me rephrase that. Yes. Yeah, so, and again, my partner, you know, we both look at our, our, you know, our children or their peer set. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do think it's, 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 you know, I think it's, it's this fitness. And I think that also they have, um, you know, when the, when the older generation was growing up, Gatorade was around. I mean, that was called considered like a health drink. And now, you know, you have, 30 different types of bottled water. You have kombucha, you have, you know, um, iced coffee, you have, you know, can't like, it's just the, the array of products you can buy, uh, certainly in the States too. I think it's really important, which is, you know, obviously a bigger market in the States, you know, where a lot of people buy their alcohol is a grocery store. So you can go and see like matcha, like it's, it's insane how many health drinks there are. And then, you know, so maybe you're spending your money on three or four of those and then a couple beers or you're buying, you know, you're buying Alcapop or maybe you're dipping into one. Just the choice and selection that, that they had to versus what the older generation has night and day. Right. What's been the impact on non-alcoholic beer sales? Because I, I know that you've dabbled in that too. We just launched a non-alcoholic, our Pearson IPA. Um, so our Pearson Express is the number one selling 
craft beer at, at uh, Pearson Airport. We just actually opened a, a tap room and a bottle shop at the airport. Hmm. So we're super excited there. Uh, non-alcoholic beer is something that that is growing incredibly rapid. Um, but we also felt that it was something we had to offer. We recognized that there were people coming into our tap room and our home delivery business and asking for a non-alcoholic beer. It used to be they're asking for wine or a cider. We still have some people asking for a cider. Um, but the demand from our, our, our customer base, who are very loyal to us and, and we're to them and we, we listen to them, um, they were asking for non-alcoholic beer. So, so we were very lucky to have a very talented brewer who has a great recipe and uh, we've launched it and it's been a huge success. We're on our second or third batch now. So, um, you know, it's how you use non-alcoholic beer. There are people who just don't drink anymore and want a beer for sure. Uh, there are people who want to have something at lunchtime and not have any alcohol in it. Um, but it certainly performs incredibly well. So we really felt that it was a, you know, it's not a, a priority for us, but it's a segment that we needed to be in just because um, we didn't want to lose customers because we didn't offer that. Same thing we did a seltzer. You know, my partner and I debated for years not to ever do a seltzer. And we finally last year brewed a seltzer, schmelzer seltzer. Um, and we're on our sixth or seventh batch of that because, you know, my wife for one is, is, is keto, uh, maybe the last person on earth to be keto, but she's keto and she wouldn't come to the brewery <laughs> with us to have some drinks because there was nothing for her to drink. So we certainly had to have a seltzer on tap. And that, that again is, you know, changing demographics, even from where we were nine years ago, nine years ago, there was no ask for that. You have beer. Great. I'll drink it now. You know, even as a brewery, you got to have a seltzer. You got to have a non-alcoholic, and I think that's about changing demographics, changing taste, and a lot of it is lifestyle. Uh, do you think that non-alcoholic beer is getting better over time? And maybe a second part to that question is: Is there innovation in beer? <laughs> non-alcoholic beer is getting better. Yes, I will say that, and I'm probably going to again piss some people off for this. If you really want a great non-alcoholic, you can't beat Bex, you can't beat Peroni, you can't beat Erdinger. And why the way that this works is that these huge European breweries that make non-alcoholic beer essentially make beer and then strip out the alcohol. So that's why it contains a lot of flavor and a lot of the protein is still there where these craft breweries, including us, set out to make a non-alcoholic beer because we can't afford the equipment to, to de-alcoholize. So hmm. I think just the sheer, there's actually a bar in Toronto, I believe the first week of January, um, doing a non-alc festival. The, 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 the level to the level to entry uh, where it was three or four years ago and you were maybe one of four breweries making an on-alk and it didn't have to taste good because there's no competition, the competition is definitely such that now you have to do it. Yeah, your beer has to stand up. And is that because the recipes are getting better or is there like innovation in the technology or the brewing process or something? Yeah, I think people are, good question. I think people are getting better at brewing it. I think that, you know, uh, most craft brewers in this country weren't tasked with making a craft beer. And they were making you know, a lot of beers that they wanted to drink. So hoppy pale ales, and IPAs and stouts and stuff like that. And I think that the, the demand from you know, customers ultimately to ownership and partnerships with breweries down to brewers um, is that you got to make a non-alc and it better be good. Because people, again, you know, we sell our non-alc for $4 a can. It's not a cheap product by any stretch of the imagination. It's not cheap mm -hmm. to make either. But that's a lot of money. And if you produce an inferior product, you're going to get called out for it. You know, so um, I think whereas four or five years ago, you could get away with being the only non-alc in the market. Now, the product has to back it up. Right. As far as innovation goes, it's really hard. I mean, this is a product that's been around for thousands of years, right? Yeah. And innovation can come from styles and flavors. But, 
you know, there's packaging innovation. It's, it's, there's some innovation, there's some innovation taking place inside tap rooms, you know, whether they're making certain styles or how they're dispensing it or what gas they're pressuring under. But as far as, you know, vessels go, recycling, um, it, it's hard. It's, it's a very difficult, ch- uh, you know, category to innovate in, except for styles and flavors. Um, and the, the, the roadmap for failure is incredibly difficult. So again, through your tap room, we could innovate and come out with, um, you know, we brewed a beer called Zero Stomia, which is the, uh, the uh, Czech medical term for dry mouth. So, you know, when, when marijuana was becoming legal, people were asking us, you can do a weed beer. And we said, that's not us. But what we would do is a beer that complements a joint. So we, we basically brought in, um, you know, uh, a deaerated water. So, so, you know, little kind of tactical innovations, but um, I'm not saying innovation is dead and there's breweries around the country, the cities doing amazing things, um, but it's getting harder and harder to truly innovate in the space. In the time that you've been in business, have you seen any uh, technological innovations or like new packaging or new equipment or whatever that's actually like moved the needle significantly for your business? Yeah, I think the biggest, the biggest, one of the things is a digitally printed can. So what we used to have to do is if you wanted a painted can, which is what you would see a Henderson's Bastin or a Steam Whistle or a, a Okanagan Spring or, a, you know, I'll name a brewery uh, out of Alberta. Uh, it, it escapes me right now, but if you, you would have to order those from, there's two companies in the States, Crown and um, Crown and Ball. And basically they're Coke and Pepsi. I think they're actually owned by Coke and Pepsi. And you would have to really? order a container load, 150,000 cans at a time. The cost is very low, but then the cash flow outlay is ginormous. Plus, you got to store these cans. So the you know, craft breweries, we were moving to a sticker model or there's a shrink wrap. And now there's an innovation where it's a digitally printed on can. And it almost looks as good or better even than the pr- cans that you get from Crown and, and Ball. But the outlay is not $75,000. The outlay is just however many cans. So there's that. There's certainly technology making our beers more shelf-stable. Yes, there's, there's quite a lot of innovation um, from, a, from a production standpoint. Certainly, that's helped us um, make better, consistent quality beer, for sure. Mm-hmm. And get to consumers at a better price. Are there parts of the supply chain that are like ripe for efficiency in terms of like improvements that could be made? Like anything mm-hmm. that you're kind yeah. of struggling or battling with? Like what's your biggest pain point? That's yeah. an interesting question. My biggest pain point? Is the taxes that Ontario brings. Okay, let's talk <laughs> about the taxes because I've been meaning to get back to the taxes. So what is, so I guess uh, federal government unveiled the budget. There was supposed to be an alcohol tax. I think they held it. What's been, I guess, Our the reaction? At, Our thing okay. is that we, we, uh, we pay 43 cents uh, on a can of beer for tax in Ontario. Uh, our neighbors in New York State pay 3.2% tax. So our real thing that our, our, our craft brewers association and Scott Simmons, the president, is lobbying against is we have so many different taxes. I can't even name them all. And it's from a, a provincial level. And really, we are incredibly, you see this repeatedly when you hear breweries go out of business or interviews in the press. We are just, the amount of money that we pay to the different, uh, to the federal government, the provincial government, I'm sorry, um, compared to other provinces is insanity. And it makes it incredibly hard. The, the volume and the uh, hard work and labor that a lot of these breweries, including Henderson, I can name about 40 breweries in Ontario. Had we been in 
New York or Alberta or British Columbia, we would potentially be twice our size with three times our size, employing more people, making more beer uh, mm. and investing in our communities. But that's so much goes to the taxes. So does the federal tax hold, I guess, does that not have as big of a, an impact on your bottom line? Yeah, it does, of course. But, uh, you know, really, it's the provincial one that we're battling right with right now. Um, and, you know, I'll leave it at that if that's okay. Yeah. Does the, uh, and you don't have to comment on it if you don't want to, but does the proposal to get rid of the beer store, does that affect you at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, we can touch on it. The, the you know, the master frame agreement, the agreement between the government and the beer store uh, comes to an end in December 2025. And the government has to give notice at the end of this year if it's going to extend that or if it's going to end it. And it's a real, real what if. I mean, the current, uh, the wind government had, um, you know, only allowed for 400 plus grocery stores to sell beer. Uh, so Loblaws and Sobeys being the big two have 65 stores each. You know, they would love to put it into a thousand, basically all of their stores, to be honest. Uh, the beer store is a archaic model, which really does serve the, the two main owners, uh, Moles and Labatt. If you ask most people in Canada, or certainly Ontario, who owns the beer store, you know, the, the data has come back time and time again that the government owns the beer store. The government doesn't own the beer store. So the government, the beer store is a phenomenal uh, distribution model. Uh, I personally hope that's what it goes back to. Uh, but yes, there will be some changes in the landscape, significant, we hope, um, starting really in, well, it'll be announced in, you know, in the next month, we hope. So um, the beer store, you know, the beer store is built to force a consumer to go in there and want to leave as soon as possible and buy big brands that they know that sat on the floor. It's not a shopping environment. Um, it's not an environment that is friendly to you know i mean the, the empty collections alone which is incredibly important but you know it really makes for an incredibly um challenging environment to walk into some of these stores as you guys are all aware when you see just sort of you know hundreds of empty cans going just being sorted as you walk through it it really doesn't make it a place where you want to shop or be there for a long time yeah so and that that's so um i will not if you know i don't mind saying it you know the beer store um There'll be big changes afoot. I think that's really the important thing. It's, it's going to be quite altering for what happened in the uh, in the Ontario beer market. Okay. Sorry for our non-Ontario listeners, but I had to no indulge myself with that question there. Okay, this is my, my last question, and maybe just to close it off, I'm curious what you see as maybe some of the big trends coming up down the road uh, in, the, in the beer market and in craft brewing. What are some things that people maybe should look out for? Hyper local is going to become more and more important. While at the same time, beer tourism, which exists and is growing, is only going to continue to grow more and more. So what is beer tourism? Beer tourism is when, you know, you go to New York, Seattle, Nashville, Asheville, Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, Winnipeg. It's not just what restaurants and shows are we going to see. It's what breweries are we going to see. And you have to be incredibly welcoming for that beer tourism, which is going to happen more and more. Uh, especially with a younger demographic who likes the idea of going to a certain area and walking around. So where you have your Brewers Row in Port Moody, you have your Etobicoke Beer Group down here in Toronto. Um, it's more and more the focus on beer tourism. Uh, and again, hyper, hyper local. So um, the days of being, you know, say the number one beer in Vancouver for a craft brewery are gone. You've got to be, you know, the number one, 
you got to be strong in your part of the city that you know, obviously distribute across the city, whether you're Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, you know, Halifax, but hyper locals and incredibly important. You're going to continue to see uh, consolidation with craft breweries. So there is strength in numbers. There is, um, you know, we certainly have a, uh, a strategic alliance with bench. I think you'll see more of those. I think you will see more um, smaller uh, struggling breweries being uh, snapped up by sm- like, you know, I'm not gonna say large breweries, but small breweries who will take over those brands, maybe shut that production facility and, and gain some economies of scale. I think for now, the, the big boys are out of the craft brewing market. You know, um, I don't think that Molson Labatt have a huge eye for, um, acquisition. Whereas what you do have now is, you know, Corona, for example, is made in Ontario and made in British Columbia. So the consumer, and, and this is something that happened over COVID, isn't so worried about heritage for big brands anymore. So what you're having is the international players like Carlsberg just brought a brewery in Ontario, a brick brewery to make their beers domestically and not have to ship across water. So I think you're going to start seeing more and more of that. The the international brewers are looking at the Canadian market and saying, you know, it's, it is a very profitable market. Um, it's, you know, not one of the top big five. It's not growing, but it's a profitable market where we want to play. It's a foothold with the States as well, certainly with Vancouver and Toronto so well located um, that they're looking for production. And, and they know the consumers don't really care anymore that their Carlsberg is not brewed in Copenhagen or, or Denmark, and it can be brewed in Toronto, uh, honestly. So they're looking for production. Um and then I think you're still going to see this, you know, the, the craft brewers are, uh, we're a tough group. We're resilient. Um, COVID was incredibly challenging, incredibly challenging. You know, um, we didn't know, we went from not knowing if our doors were going to be shut to not being able to make enough beer. You know, people lined up around the block to summer opening and shutting. It was just insanity, but we, we survived from that. And as long as, um, you know, we can win some battles at a, at a provincial level, um, the, the craft brewery in Ontario, around the country will continue to flourish. You know, I, I do think that the headwinds, the headwinds have always been there. You know, people always say, oh, there's too many breweries, there's going to be consolidation, a lot are going to go out. And again, like I said to you earlier, you know, the, the, the press is quick to latch on to a brewery shutting and maybe the brewery shutting because they just had enough, you know. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean they were, they were financially viable. A lot of times they're financially more viable, but that's not the whole story. They just, they want to see you know, the press doesn't always want to tell a positive story. They need news sometimes. True. Uh, we know about that. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Aiden. That was a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you uh, sharing that with us and joining us on Free Lunch. Yeah, you guys are great. Thank you. I'm a big fan of The Peak, actually. So I've, uh, I've read it for probably, well, I'm going to call myself out here, but at least four years. I, oh, wow. From the beginning. Very kind. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you guys are great.